Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll be looking at why some people are choking on the government's new air pollution targets, how nutrient pollution is killing wildlife and blocking house building, why beavers could be on their way back to London. Then Jamie is going to continue his ritual humiliation of us with a fiendish quiz of some kind. And then after we've recovered, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive into the shockingly poor health of England's chalk streams. Then the Chemical Brothers will be along to point out the perils of harmful chemicals lurking in babies' nappies. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and I'm here as usual with our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And our new news editor, Pippa Neal. Hi. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. In the last episode, we looked at the government's proposed new nature and water targets. They did not go down well, but in this episode, we thought we'd examine the planned new air quality targets. So overall, DEF is proposing 12 new environmental targets, but just two relate to air pollution, which is nuts considering the massive public health problems it causes. Pippa, can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, sure. So the first target that the government's proposed is a new target for particulate matter of 10 micrograms per cubic metre by 2040. And the second target relates to a 35% reduction in population exposure to particulate matter also by 2040 compared to a base year of 2018. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about particulate matter? Yes, particulate matter basically is anything in the atmosphere that's not a gas, um, and it's about 30 times smaller than a single human hair, so incredibly tiny, and that's what makes it so dangerous, because it can enter deep into your lungs and the respiratory tract and impact health in that way. Okay. So campaigners have massively criticised this target because it falls way below the World Health Organization's suggested safe levels. So in 2005, the recommended level was that particulate matter should be 10 micrograms per cubic metre. But last year, they tightened this even further to five, following new research showing that, in theory, there is no safe level of yeah. when it comes to exposure to particulate matter. see this matter. happening a lot with these limits. They come down and down the more the research is done. Exactly. So I think there's just a general consensus that the government's kind of falling way behind and just reacting way too slowly to kind of these clear signals from the World Health Organization. So how has it been received by people that are interested in this, campaigners and medical groups and so on? Yeah, so there's been a kind of a lot of backlash in response to this. There was Jane Burson, who's the executive director of the Clean Air Fund, said she was astounded. And she was particularly shocked, not only with the level of the target, but also with the long-term nature of it. The fact that this is saying to reach 10 micrograms per cubic metre by 2040. Yeah. So, you know, that means breathing in polluted air for another 18 years. And she kind of challenged that target directly by pointing to research that the Clean Air Fund had done with Imperial College London Mm -hmm. showing that this target could be reached in 10 years, which according to DEFRA would be impossible. So when DEFRA has responded saying it's impossible, have they given a reason why? So they just said that in order to reach the target by 2040, it's going to need massive changes across all sectors of society from travel, how we heat our homes, all these different things. And that 2040 is kind of the most reasonable goal we can achieve. But separate modelling done by independent sources has shown something different. So what kind of um, health issues have been linked to particulate pollution? To be honest, it's quite terrifying because the list is absolutely endless. Like I think, obviously, when you think of air pollution, you think of the impact it has on your breathing, so your lungs and asthma. Mm -hmm. But it's also linked to dementia, to depression, anxiety, 
to cancer, the list really does go on. Um, I think there's not really any health condition that isn't exacerbated by exposure to particulate matter. Yeah. The European Environment Agency says that particulate matter is responsible for 307,000 premature deaths every year, which is a shocking figure. DEFRA has launched a couple of consultations to try to move things forward. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the first consultation is seeking views on increased engagement between local authorities and communities about the impact that air pollution has on people's health. Um, So I think that will be really interesting. And I think at the moment, there's sort of a lot of conflict over who really is responsible for air pollution and also quite a big lack of awareness of the impact that it has. So having that kind of public health campaign on a local governmental level could be really important. So the councils are mainly responsible for local air quality, is that right? It's not really the environment agency. Yeah. Is one of the consultations trying to broaden the kind of responsibility beyond just councils? Yeah, so the second consultation is proposing to designate national highways in order to ensure that there's more consistent collaboration between government and national highways and local authorities. Okay. Well, that all sounds really interesting and we'll have to look at those consultations and see how people respond and what DEFRA actually does in the end. It's due to publish a revised national air quality strategy in 2023. Moving on, our next story is a bit of an update on something Jamie and I discussed in the very first episode of the Eco Chamber. It's those algal blooms of doom. And that probably needs something in the way of explanation. Nitrates and phosphorus from farming and from wastewater treatment works are pouring into rivers and coastal waters causing eutrophication, which is essentially where wildlife is suffocated as a result of a lack of oxygen in the water. It's causing huge problems in some important and protected waters, so much so that Natural England has been dispensing advice to councils, saying that new developments, new houses in certain areas shouldn't be approved unless they can prove they're not going to make the situation worse. Jamie, can you explain a bit more about this and bring us up to date? So yeah, the the algal blooms of doom are, are back with with a vengeance this time. So um, on on the same day that Defra announced its its environmental targets, we were just talking about, and also the the nature recovery green paper, there was also a major announcement which um, related to this issue of nutrient neutrality. And and there were kind of two developments that were were significant. One one was that we learnt that the number of councils that were affected by Natural England's nutrient neutrality advice has now more than doubled. So um, previously, I think thirty two authorities were affected. So the the kind of most high profile kind of instance of this was was the Solent where this yeah. issue kicked off other other places like Somerset, Kent and Cornwall and Herefordshire. And Jamie's put together a great map on ensreport.com showing which areas have been affected, so go and have a look. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. so it it was an issue, or it has been until now, an issue that's mainly affected authorities in the in the south and west of of England, but now now nutrient neutrality has spread far and wide. So you've you've got councils in the very very north of of England that are now affected by this. Yeah. And, um, it's kind of important to say this, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole council area is affected. It's about the the kind of catchments that that relate to protected sites. So yeah. it might not be that a whole local authority you have development stored in the whole whole local authority area, but it, it, but there are substantial mm. tracts of England that are now newly affected by this. So how are councils and developers trying to get around it? Well, in places where it's already been established, there have been some mitigation solutions. So there's things like um, new new wetlands that are being developed to capture the, these nutrients before they hit the um, protected sites. So you, there are kind of other things where 
councils have been been kind of putting forward these kind of nutrient credit schemes and stuff like that. So there have been kind of quite a few attempts to to kind of get around this issue, and and there has been some success in the number of homes that have been blocked has has kind of decreased in those areas. But but I think the for the, for the councils that are kind of newly affected by this. They are a bit stuck, essentially. There has been some support announced by the government, so guidance, tools and training and financial assistance, but but actually parts of the government do expect there to be delays now. So the, um, I can't bring myself to say it, the Leveling Up Department's <laughs> Chief Planner, um, Joanna Averly, she wrote a letter to Chief Planning Officers. She said that she expected there to be an immediate impact on applications and appeals in the affected areas, mm. and it's unlikely for there to be mitigation solutions in place or readily available. Well, they're, they're, so they're facing up to the problem. The credit scheme that you mentioned before, how does that work? And are there enough of them for developers to be able to, to use them? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's been one of the issues in, in the Sonat. So basically, the, the, um, the developer will, will pay a certain amount of money to a, a scheme to offset the, the impact of its um, okay. new housing. And, and I think the, in, the, in the Solent, the feeling that, that that has worked in some place, but it's a bit of a, a catchment lottery where you're okay in some parts, but in yeah. other parts, there aren't the schemes available. So it's not not necessarily a solution that's um, working brilliantly, but but it has it has definitely helped to bring some houses online. I think the the kind of other issue that's kind of come to light following the the announcement by Natural England is that, that you've got these authorities that, that that are now affected by the advice for the first time, but the authorities that have been previously affected by the advice and have been developing mitigation solutions are now also in, in a bit of a pickle as well because Natural England has updated its nutrient neutrality methodology yeah. and, and its calculators. And and that means that, that um, well, one council in Hampshire haven't has actually halted planning approvals as a result because um, it didn't expect this change. And now it's kind of trying to unpick what the issue means. So all the work that's been done into its offsetting scheme is now not relevant or it doesn't have the right mechanics behind it? I think just because it had a, it made some assumptions about how much credits were needed, right. that, that sort of stuff. Okay, and, and yeah. now it's, I, I'm not sure how long this moratorium is going to last for, but it's certainly concerned enough to kind of put the brakes on things while it kind of works out what it all means. Yeah. So, so yeah, so basically it's, it's a pretty, pretty big mess all Yeah, around. it does sound like a, like a big mess. I think some of the councils have been taking their complaints to Michael Gove because they're saying that they can't meet these housing targets that they've been set. Um, can you say any more about that? Um, so I, th- I, th- I think one of the issues is obviously the, the, the government has ambitious housing targets and and this is going to make it quite difficult for them to achieve their their local targets and the and the, the other kind of risk i think some councils are concerned about is that it makes them vulnerable to development by appeal so councils have to demonstrate that they, they've got a five-year supply of deliverable sites and if mm. if you don't have that five-year supply then developers have much higher chance of succeeding on appeal if they put an application in they can get that through and if having a whole load of sites now in doubt because councils have got to deal with this nutrient issue then I think there's this a concern that from those authorities that they, they might then sort of see development by appeal in, in parts of the authorities that aren't within those catchments. Is there a different way of, of tackling it? I mean I, I presume it would be expensive for developers but could they put in their own sort of wastewater treatment works for their new developments? Is that something that's been looked at? That That is one of the solutions is, is some developments do have been putting in kind of on-site wastewater treatment plants but I think it is as you say, it's, it is expensive. And what we talked about last time was that there's a feeling that, that developers and house builders are being hammered by this and, and that there are certain other sources of mm. nutrients like, like the agriculture, yeah. wastewater treatment plants that aren't really doing their share to yeah. tackle the issue. It's a lot of finger pointing going on. Yeah, exactly. So this issue seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Um, 
Let's come back to it in a few episodes time to see what's happened and whether any solutions have been found. So moving on, let's have some good news, which is quite rare on the Eco Chamber, although the background to it is pretty horrible. So this story is all about beavers. And first, the horrible bit. They became extinct in the UK in the 16th century because they were hunted as vermin, as well as for their fur and their meat and for scent glands. It's nice. But things are changing. Slowly and in a very piecemeal fashion, some really great organisations are bringing back the beaver. And some of these beavers have even escaped the enclosures that they're being introduced in and established themselves that way. To date, there are beavers in Scotland, Wales, Devon, on the River Otter, which I think is a bit confusing, and they've been designated as a European protected species. But some landowners don't like this idea. They say they're going to make a mess and eat all their fish, even though they're herbivores. But, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good moan. Uh, So what's the latest on Beaver Watch, Pippa? Yeah, so recently two beavers have been brought to London for the first time in more than 400 years. And they've been brought to a specially designed enclosure in the grounds of Forty Hall Farm in Enfield. Okay. And the the reintroduction is part of a two-year plan by the council to tackle the effects of climate change, they say. So this is kind of the first scheme of its kind, and it'll be interesting to see what it happens. And the deputy leader of the council said, they're not just beautiful creatures, but they're also good in the ecosystem to encourage other animals and insects because of the ponds and dams they make. Great. So in tackling climate change impacts, they mean sort of to help staunch flooding and things like that by building dams and felling trees and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think so. Um, But this has been happening in a few places. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit more about any of the other projects that are ongoing? Yeah, yeah. So, so I suppose we're talking beaver fever, and so, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the no. title of the podcast. Sorted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and as you say, they, they seem to be spreading around the country almost as quickly as natural England's nutrient neutrality advice. <laughs> so, um, Niche humour here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think that's all the jokes I've got now. But um, <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got we've, we've talked about London. We, we, there recently, we've also talked about plans to reintroduce beavers at a site within the Lake District in 2023, and also I think the Isle of Wight by next year as well. So, and, and I think earlier on you said a place like Scotland where reintroductions happened sort of in, in 2009, I think, and Wales, Devon, Kent, Somerset. And so I think from a position where was it 400 years ago they were extinct in this country, now you've got a situation where there are hundreds in Scotland, although it's, um, yes. as you say, it's not straightforward and there have been some issues around beaver cull yes. licences that have been a bit controversial. So after bringing them back, Nature Scott has issued licences to control beavers and um, control is a horrible euphemism. There's a lot of heavy lifting. It can mean trapping and moving, but it can also just mean killing. Um, has there been a legal challenge relating to the culling of beavers? There has, yeah. So, so this this goes back a, a while. When, when so the Scottish um, wildlife regulator is now called Nature Scott. It was called um, Scottish Natural Heritage, and a couple of years ago in 2020, it was accused of wholesale beaver slaughter. Oh God! Um, so it was part of this kind of um, culling control scheme. I think more than more than 200 beavers have been legally culled in the past two years under its authorisations. That's a huge number. It's a huge number. Do we know Um, how many there are in Scotland? What someone said about around 1,000. I've seen about 450 elsewhere, but certainly there there are hundreds. Mm. So this is obviously a very, very kind of controversial issue and and, and unpopular in some quarters. So there was a legal challenge over whether Nature Scott had been sort of unlawful in how it had allowed beavers to be, be killed. And there was a ruling in October last year where it was found to have unlawfully allowed beavers to be killed and, and was ordered to stop issuing licences to cull the animals. But it was kind of, Nature Scotland said it didn't, didn't really change its approach because 
effectively it just meant that, that it had to first give its reasons for this in, in writing. So it was a bit of a, it wasn't kind of a proper victory really. Right. But it does kind of, kind of illustrate, I suppose, this kind of issue around how nature's got, I suppose, is kind of issuing these licenses because it wants to protect farms, woodland and, and infrastructure that, that might be at risk from these, these reintroductions. Do you um, know who's applying for the licenses? I'm assuming it's farmers yeah. and, and landowners. Yeah. Um, I think I think anglers are also sometimes um not, not amazed by having beaver reintroductions in their in their areas. Yeah, I think some of them were concerned that the the dams would prevent the fish from traveling. Mm. But I think beavers and salmon have they've coexisted for a really long time. I don't know the salmon, but you know beavers and fish have uh, coexisted for a really long time and I'm sure they would they would find a way. Um, I know I, for one, would be very, very thrilled to see a family of beavers playing in the Thames, if they can stomach all the pollution in there, that is. But don't get me started on that. We'd better move on. It's time for the quiz. Jamie, what do you have in store for Pippa and I today? Well, last time we, I say we, I I plumbed the depths of um, Saturday night TV quiz shows and embarrassed myself by channeling my inner Nick Knowles and (laughs) revealing that I may have some point in the past have watched... National Lottery, Who Dares Wins. <laughs> <laughs> so if you really want to listen to that, you, we've now got a new section on our website, which is engreport.com forward slash podcast, where you can re- listen to any of our previous podcasts. Hours of joy. Hours of joy, exactly. Um, so in, anyway, I was kind of thinking about where where to go from there and found myself strangely drawn to Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I suppose you've seen it. I know of it. Yeah, yeah. Definitely seen it before. Fantastic. <laughs> so one one of the segments is called Win the Ads, and I think what happens there is that they kind of select an ITV program, and 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 the ads during its commercial breaks are used to create the prizes. And I've thrown some antidote trivia as well. I don't know if you know this, but Ant is always on the left, and Deck always stands on the right. Ah. <laughs> I'm trying. I can't picture how they stand. <laughs> anyway. Confusing. <laughs> Enough of that. So um, I was digressing in a big way there. So um, <laughs> so where I'm going with this is that I thought it'd be interesting to look at um, greenwashing in adverts. And there have been a, a growing number of decisions by the Advertising Standards Authority around this. And so that they're, they're really cracking down on adverts that make misleading environmental claims. And, and it says it won't, it won't hesitate to crack down on any adverts that break its rules. And there have been quite a few examples of this over the last couple of years. Um, so I thought I might ask you some questions around around this. Okay. Okay. So so I'm, I'm going to list four airlines, and, and one of these was pulled up by the Advertising Standards Authority for Greenwashing in February 2020, and it made the claim that it was Europe's lowest emissions airline. So the, the four airlines are EasyJet, Ryanair, British Airways, and Lufthansa. Um, any guesses? I'm going to go with EasyJet. Yeah, I was going to say EasyJet too. Actually, Ryanair. Oh, so, okay. So yeah, it claimed to be Europe's lowest emission airline, but this is that because it just has fewer planes? <laughs> yeah, well, it said that it had its low emissions credentials were due to it having a young, efficient fleet of aircraft, and it was operating with largely full aircraft. But the ASA found that these claims had little substantiation. So it wasn't really, um, oh, really expect that Who'd from Ryanair. Who'd have thought would Ryanair yeah, would exactly. do something like that? <laughs> Um, one more question. So this is about car manufacturers, and this one of these ran a, an ad considered to be misleading in a decision issued by the ASA in June 2021. And this car claimed to be so beautifully clean, it purifies the air as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I 
no oh idea God. why that's misleading. So the, the wow. uh, four, four manufacturers are Hyundai, Nissan, Ford, and Toyota. Any, any guesses? Hyundai? Toyota. It was Hyundai. So it, it, it ran an ed, a, a website ad for its Nexo model. Bizarrely, it was found to be misleading. <laughs> Amazing. It's crazy. A car that cleans the air as it goes. Yeah. I mean, what an invention. The, um, the, the actual image of it is, is fantastic. It has the, the almost like the exhaust is hooked up to this like, bubble with, with someone <laughs> exercising within the bubble. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think I won one for the first time. <laughs> it's in, about time. Yeah, yeah, in many episodes. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Jamie. That brings us to the end of our Big Green News session. Thank you to Pippa. Thank you to Jamie. And we are now going to move on into our deep dive section. Uh, it's a deep dive into the world of chalk streams, which is not advisable because they're very shallow, but they're also very rare and very fragile habitats. And with many of our special places, they're under threat. Now in our deep dive section, I'm with Jamie and we're talking chalk streams. So chalk streams are rare and fragile habitats. There are only around 225 or thereabouts in the world. And most of these, around 85%, uh, rise from chalk aquifers in England. Most of those are in the southeast, with some in the sort of north East Yorkshire kind of area as well. So why are they so special? Well, their waters are clear, clean, mineral rich, and they spring from below ground, which means that they're warmer than rain-fed rivers, which enables life to thrive throughout the year. They're home to uh, lots of fish and wildlife like uh, brown trout, Atlantic salmon, brook lamprey, bullhead, and then otters, water voles, and voles are... Britain's fastest disappearing mammal, um, kingfishers, water shrew, white clawed crayfish, and all sorts of lovely plants like watercress and so on. Bliss. Well, no, this is the eco chamber, so you should know by now we've got something miserable up our sleeves. They're in a terrible state. Drought, population growth, development, and abstraction are literally sucking them dry, not to mention all the pollution that we've been banging on about. So some stretches of these beautiful streams are now no more than muddy ditches or dry channels. Jamie, can you tell me a bit more about what's happening to them? Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, the, these chalk streams are, um, people describe them as England's rainforests or kind of the equivalent of England's Great Barrier Reef. And I've, I've seen it described as what's going on is, is kind of one of the one of the great kind of environmental scandals in, in, in this country, the other, the other kind of being around salmon farming in in Scotland, yes. um, so they're under they're under huge pressure. So as you say, things like over abstraction. I should just say, people probably know, but abstraction is just taking water out of the environment for use for drinking or for industry or for whatever. Yeah, exactly. So over abstraction that that's kind of a result of population growth. Um, and the fact that some of these chalk streams are, are located in places where where the the chalk aquifers are actually where where some water companies draw all of their water supplies from, and then we also have things around pollution and, and, and drought linked to climate change. Um, so all of these things are kind of creating a pretty perfect storm of issues that are um, causing these chalk streams to run run dry in, in some instances. Um, yeah. In the Chilterns recently, I think all of them failed to reach the Water Framework Directive's um, objectives of good ecological status, which is terrible. And I think of all of them, only 11 are protected from abstraction through being designated sites of special scientific interest or special areas mm -hmm. of conservation. And, and the rest of them are, I think probably some of those are really, really struggling. I wrote a feature back in 2018, that was a while ago, but I don't think the situation has changed. In fact, it's probably got worse. Um, huge stretches of some of these rivers were uh, completely dry. I think like uh, forty-four percent of the Ver was dry. Four point one kilometers of the uh, 
Hamble Brook and Hewenden Stream were completely dry. The, the, the list goes on and the figures might be different today, but I think the problem um, remains the same. What is the Environment Agency and you know what are the water companies trying to do to, to stem this issue? I, th- I think it's interesting when you look at what the Environment Agency says about it, because it, it kind of acknowledges that there is a big problem here. But essentially, it seems what it's doing is trying to manage what are competing demands on this finite resource. So you, you have... Um, the fact that the these chalk streams and chalk aquifers provide drinking water for people across the southeast, like Cambridge water, I think is 100% dependent on its source of water for its supply. Um, and, and without it, the concern is that taps would run dry. You also have the fact that businesses and, and agriculture need this water to deliver what they need to do. And then you, you have competing with that the, the kind of environmental impacts of, of what's happening due to the, the, the water being taken away. So I think I think we, we talked few episodes around Sir James Bevan, who's the chief executive of the Environment Agency, and his his kind of um, description of this kind of jaws of death scenario, mm. and it kind of seems a bit like the the chalk streams are on the on the front line of this kind of issue, and and some of these solutions might help, like building new reservoirs or water transfers, or I suppose how the public uses its water, sort of cutting down on water use. But it doesn't get around the fact that the issues are very very difficult to resolve, and actually a lot of these things are going to get worse. So climate change is going to get worse. Um, we're going to see more droughts. The population is going to grow more in, in a lot of these chalk streams are in areas where there are population pressures and, and housing growth is planned. So it, it doesn't seem like there's any any kind of real clear solution, yeah. unfortunately. I think water companies have you know pledged to reduce the amount that they abstract from you know particular chalk stream areas. Um, but as you say, there are some that that rely on it exclusively. Affin- Affinity Water, I think, is another one. Water companies love this stuff because it's really, really clean because it's been filtered through the chalk and then they don't have to spend as much time and money um, on treatment processes with it. So they're going to have to be weaned off it. And I imagine if they actually, if they could sort out the water loss via leakage, that would really, really yes. help. They wouldn't have to take <laughs> nearly half as much of this pure stuff from the from the aquifers. Um, there are also threats to the chalk streams in the Chilterns from HS2, which is tunnelling in the area. Can you tell me a little bit about that? There's been a row rumbling on um, for, for a little while now around the fact that um, HS2 is having to tunnel sort of um, beneath the Chilterns area of outstanding natural beauty um, as part of its works. And, and there, there have been concerns from local local groups that this risks damaging the um, the fragile aquifer, which um, sits in the way of these operations and, and therefore the chalk streams that, that feed off this. Yeah, I think the, that uh, HS2 has said, you know, very firmly to the local community who are furious about this, that there will not be any damage caused to the aquifer and it won't be taking out huge amounts, although it looks like it might need 10 million litres of water per day. And it has also indemnified Affinity Water against any damage, which hasn't really given the communities much confidence that uh, there couldn't possibly be any damage. But like I said, there are moves afoot. Um in November, an independent group set up by the government called the Chalk Stream Restoration Group uh, recommended, well, they made 33 recommendations. And among that, they wanted the government to give enhanced environmental status to chalk streams so that they're better protected. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, 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 the kind of key recommendation of the strategy was is there, for, is there to be an overarching level of protection and priority status for to chalk streams and their, and their catchments, yeah. um, kind of giving them a... The idea would be to give them a distinct identity and, and then to help drive investment in, in water resources infrastructure and, and water treatment and, and, and catchment scale restorations. Um, so that, that that's the kind of overarching thing. That, as you said, there's 33 recommendations. There are other, other things like um, 
recommendation that there be a consensus agreement on the definition of sustainable abstraction. Mm, that would be useful. Um, yeah, and a commitment to set time-bound goals to meet this target on all chalk streams where it's technically feasible and ecologically beneficial, and also a review of water body boundaries and assessment points to ensure that methodologies for assessing flows and water quality protect all of the chalk stream and especially its headwaters. Okay. So there's, lot, there's lots in there. Yeah. Um, I asked Jeffrey yesterday whether they had responded or what they were planning to do with those recommendations. And they said only that they've committed to a scoping phase, where that means that they're going to just look at the recommendations in detail and that it's going to respond formally later this year. So we'll have a look at it then and we'll come back to that. Thank you, Jamie. That was our Jorkstream deep dive. As I said, we'll get back to that soon. But now we're going to move on to the Chemical Brothers with Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins. Thanks, Rachel. This is Simon Pickstone. I'm the Deputy Editor at NG Europe. I'm Gareth Simpkins, Senior Writer at The Ends Report. And this week on our radar for the Chemical Brothers, we have disposable babies' nappies. It's not a place where you'd want to see hazardous chemicals. Unfortunately, European regulators appear to have unearthed a surprising and slightly worrying secret. This sounds pretty bad, frankly. What's going on here? Well, it's to do with the kinds of chemicals that nappies may or may not contain. But to get an understanding of what's going on, it's maybe useful to take a step back and just have a think about what nappies are made up of, disposable ones at least. Generally speaking, we have three layers for a nappy. We've got the top sheet. That's the layer that sits against the baby's skin. That's generally made up of polypropylene, kind of plastic. You've got a core, which is a mix of cellulose. So that's kind of pulpy, fluffy, absorbent stuff that's from the paper industry. And that's mixed normally with sodium polyacrylate. That's a super absorbent material developed initially in the 1960s, which has a fantastic ability to absorb water and turn it into a sort of gel. Finally, a back sheet that's made up of polyethylene, widely used plastic because it's water repellent. Okay, so all of these are perfectly well-known materials and have been used for yonks. So what's got people riled up about them? It's to do with an emerging body of research which suggests that you might have some chemicals migrating from the nappy to your baby's skin, which is not ideal, let's say. Um, the most recent concerns have been highlighted by a French regulator, ANSES, A-N-S-E-S, which is kind of similar or has some of the same functions as the UK's health and safety executive it published a study in 2019 detecting a number of hazardous chemicals that had the ability to migrate through urine to the skin. Some of these were to do with the perfumes that some nappies have. Some of them are to do with unintentionally added chemicals, generally speaking, contaminants from manufacturing. These are things like dioxins and furans, which are generally quite bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like the outcome of chlorine-based bleaching, I'd imagine. Are um, other European regulators on the case too? Not exactly. Basically, what's happened is the French regulator has submitted a dossier to the European Chemicals Agency called ECHA. The process in the EU, obviously, this no longer applies to the UK because, you know, because of Brexit. Um, now, ECHA has, uh, well, it received the dossiers last year. It asked two of its expert committees to assess how reliable the dossier was that the French regulator submitted. Um, its dossier looks at deoxins, furans, also things like PCBs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, formaldehyde, which it says it can detect in quantities that are potentially going to pose a risk to babies' health. Oh, that, that does not sound good, does it, really? <laughs> well, it, what's interesting is that ECHA's two committees came back 
late last year and both suggested that actually it wasn't worth recommending further restrictions on the chemical content of, of nappies. One of its committees, which looks at the kind of socioeconomic impact of chemicals restrictions, said that basically it wasn't convinced that any further restrictions on hazardous chemicals and nappies were worth the costs to manufacturers and to society more generally. The second, called the Risk Assessment Committee, took the view that basically the data was inconclusive and more research basically needs to be done. So were the French authorities kind of shouting fire at a crowded theatre here? Were they exaggerating? I mean, it's hard to tell. It seems clear that definitely more research should be carried out. This is obviously an area of concern. The French regulators, these aren't kind of mumbo-jumbo hippies. These are pretty serious regulators with scientific backgrounds and have done a lot of work. And it's useful, I mean, it's important to note as well that health and environment groups in Brussels, but in other European countries as well, are continuing to pressure regulators into taking action. They think that the European Commission, um, so that's the kind of EU executive branch, should take a precautionary approach to regulating nappies and should basically go ahead and start the process of restricting at least the, the hazardous chemicals that you can find in nappies. This is a, a pretty classic case of the precautionary principle hitting against uh, industry interests, isn't it really? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think it's also worth noting that there's things that you can do in order to minimise, if you do have children's exposure to these chemicals, um, you can use, for instance, disposable nappies that don't have perfumes in them, seems to be one option. Well, from my own experience, I used reusable nappies with my two kids, and that sounds like a far better way of avoiding this uh, kind of ex exposure in the first place, and whether that's something to be concerned about or not. That definitely seems like one way forward, yeah. Yeah. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Pippa Neal, Gareth Simkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com where you will find more than you could possibly ever want. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you in the next episode. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.